Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, I often hear a collective sigh when people talk about equity market investing in Europe. The markets are heterogeneous, nuanced. Uh, they have underperformed the US, most notably on a risk-adjusted basis. And at a corporate level, capital allocation decisions are at best questionable. But, and there is a but, this is perhaps the perfect environment for active management. Well, my guest this week seems to think so. His name is Chris Garston. He is the fund manager of our very own European Capital Growth Fund. I've worked with Chris for over seven years and have always enjoyed his investment ideas and the way he thinks about stocks. In this episode, we discuss how he got into fund management, his formative years at Credit Suisse. We introduce capital cycle investing and he identifies where he sees the opportunities in Europe today. Chris is a brilliant fund manager. He brings a good deal of his own personality to his craft. We enjoyed recording it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is the Why Invest podcast. Chris Garston, welcome to the podcast. How did you start your career? Well, I'm ashamed to say there was a good dollop of nepotism in there because my father got me a job in the post room of a private client stockbroker called Buckmaster & Moore, which in Big Bang was then gobbled up by Credit Suisse. And I started off in the private client department after my stint in the post room <laughs> and then moved on to managing funds. Okay, well, managing funds and specifically managing European funds, what drew you to Europe? Well, it's really been the story of Europe's life because at that stage, no one wanted to do the job. We already had a U.S. fund manager doing the U.S. and Asian people doing Asia, and there was no one doing continental Europe. And I found the region fascinating, but it's rarely been in fashion. And in fact, over the last 30 years, it's only really hit top of the pops when the Berlin Wall came down. And that was quite a long time ago. How, long was, it, how long was it top of the pops for? About six months. <laughs> Taking about five steps back on Europe and, and thinking about it as an investment destination, why do you think European markets have developed in such a heterogeneous way? Well, you're absolutely right. They are extremely heterogeneous. And to be totally honest, I'm slightly surprised how different they all are. And taking a slightly uh, topical issue, politics at the moment, you know, you look at the Swiss market where politics, no one knows who the Swiss prime minister is. They've been neutral since 1515, and they've never said boo to a goose. And then you can take something like Sweden, where, again, people barely know the prime minister's name. They did a lot of military activity in the 1700s, but have, again, been neutral since 1939, and are very proud of it. And then you take Russia, where everyone knows the president's name. And um, it's a slightly amazing situation that you've got a, a relatively small man with a permanent scowl sitting in an absurdly large room behind an absurdly large table. And, you know, you only really need him to be stroking a cat for it to be the sort of perfect scene for a villain in a James Bond movie. And so that's the kind of scope you have in Europe. And so, of course, you know, if you buy a Russian company, which we don't, mm. 
But if you were to, you know, it's inconceivable that it'd have the same backdrop that, say, a Swiss company would have. Mm-hmm. That to me sounds like a top-down argument and a, a governance argument because of the weak institutions, let's say, in Russia versus the rest of Europe. Do you think there's something more cultural at play as well? I'm just trying to get a, a handle on, on what the drivers of the differences across Europe are from an investment perspective. I think they're just cultural and they take a long time to even out. You know, when I was looking at the Nordic market, it is completely different to the Southern European markets. I mean, just for example, shortly after we launched the fund, we launched our fund in 2001, 2003, Italy had its biggest ever bankruptcy, which was Parmalat. And the Prime Minister, Berlusconi, changed the corporate bankruptcy laws by decree. And that was corporate governance in, in Southern Europe for you. Mm-hmm. How would you compare sort of corporate governance at a corporate level across the region? And you know, if you had to mark the corporate governance and sort of friendly shareholder policies across the region, who would be at the top of the leaderboard and uh, who would be sitting at the bottom? Well, I think unquestionably, the top of the leaderboard would be the Scandinavians. And I would give them 10 out of 10. And in my book, a good corporate governance, a good manager wears three hats. They have to treat their employees well, make sure they're well paid, well trained, etc. They have to treat the company well. They have to invest in it, make sure it's got leading edge products and leading edge manufacturing if it's involved in that. But also it has to treat the shareholders well. And they, in Scandinavia, get that balance really well defined. Whereas, you know, broadly, the further south you go, the more hazy it becomes, which for reasons that I, I don't really know. I mean, well, why is it so different? It, it's interesting, but it is. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Sweden, it's just a generally known principle that a company will pay out roughly three quarters of its earnings to shareholders, whereas in Germany, the standard payout's about 30 to 40%. Mm-hmm. And the rest is the general pot for the management to do their various projects with. I wonder if that capital allocation, or because there's lack of sort of consistency in capital allocation across Europe, is that one of the drivers for such a sort of, frankly, small equity market relative to the size of the underlying economy? So for example, the European market is roughly 50 to 70% of GDP compared to the American market, which is roughly 150 to 200% of GDP. How do you square those, uh, that circle? Well, again, this is so interesting. They vary enormously between the countries. Mm-hmm. So you've got France, Germany, and Switzerland that in stock market terms are all roughly the same in value. But Switzerland's got a population, I believe, of something like 11, 12 million. And Germany's about 80 million. And, you know, why is Switzerland so successful? Well, is that a favourable tax environment? Well, partly, but only partly because Ireland has a very favourable tax environment and that hasn't done so well. And I put it down to the fact that the Swiss 
are very good at thinking strategically. And so, for example, Roche, the big pharmaceutical company, in 1991, bought the global rights to PCR technology for $300 million. Now, we now heard of PCR. It's, it's basically a molecular photocopier. So you can take a small sample and very quickly multiply it up, and you can get test results very quickly. But since they bought it for what is now seems peanuts, they have had aggregate sales of $30 billion. So that was a great forward-thinking acquisition. And it's not just Roche. You take Nestle. 20 years ago, they bought into pet food. When it was just beginning to change, because in those days, pet food was basically the stuff that Richmond sausages didn't want. It was the, the, the real gunk. And now, of course, people have their pets tested for all the allergies going, and you have your bespoke dinner delivered by courier, thanks to companies like Nestle with their Purina brand. But so they're visionaries. Is that they're visionaries. They're, they are. Well, visionaries they're they're, they're very good at it. Perspective. Well, let's turn to, to France and Germany, because as I understand it, France and Germany like conglomerates. They favor conglomerates. They prefer growth over returns. And I wonder how you assess the quality of, of management in, in France and Germany when you know, they're inclined to grow for the sake of growing. Yes. Well, this is a constant source of discussion. And the Germans love to have multiple divisions. And they say this is stability. And we joke in our team here that uh, we never really understand it because Homo sapiens feel pretty stable on two legs. And so why do companies need five or six legs? Really? Spiders, though. Spiders are base, don't they? They do. But a lot of German companies are closer to a spider than a Homo sapien. Mm, that's true. So because of that, what does that mean for returns to shareholders because of that sort of philosophy of stability through growing eight legs? Well, it means that the German market hasn't been nearly as good as the much more focused, penny-farthing orientated Scandinavians that can cycle on one wheel because mm. they're very focused. And I always think of um, the great Victorian entrepreneur Carnegie. He was the, the, the very successful steel baron. He was told on many occasions that he should diversify his wealth away from steel. And he said, no, he's quite happy to have all his eggs in one basket, but you should watch that basket mighty carefully. Mm. And that's what the Scandinavians are good at. And if you've got a lot of baskets, you tend not to look at them so carefully. Yes, I can see that. And I think from my time in Asia, I have an awful lot of sympathy with the ability for, for managers to spread one's risk in inverted commas and buy things like property and energy assets, which are very much non-core to the, the business operations. And Chris, I want to turn to your investment process and how one can apply a consistent investment process across a region, the size and as diverse as Europe. Do you have to adjust depending on which countries that you're looking at? And, you know, in your 20 odd years managing money and allocating capital across the region, have you had to adjust depending on the, which countries the companies are operating? That's a good question. And broadly, 
we don't because we have the attributes that we are looking for which are broadly a headwind turning to a tailwind so a company that's had a difficult time getting easier and then feeling confident that those returns will be given back to us through dividends or share buybacks and broadly the further south you go the less we have in the portfolio because we're not prepared to compromise on what we think is a, a winning strategy. Did that then lead you into a certain type of stock? And do you therefore miss out on opportunities, you know, perhaps mean reverting value opportunities in the southern states of Europe? I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. No, but um, industries are always changing. So for many years, uh, you know, an industry may be having a difficult time, but there will be a, a moment when it returns and we can invest in it. But we are very keen that when we do invest in it, we will see the benefits of it and it won't then be channeled into a, you know, a new leg. Can you give me an example of said industry, of how you apply your process? Well, just for example, uh, I mean, there are many, but uh, for years and years, the, the salmon farming industry was very difficult because the global demand for factory farm salmon mm-hmm. never fell. It's a very constant circa 5% growth. Mm-hmm. Use the marginal supply. But there are a lot of suppliers, mm-hmm. primarily the Nordic area. But there was always excess supply or the potential for excess supply. And then they got a disease. Norway is the biggest producer by far, called the salmon lice. And by government decree, they had to restrict supply in order to get the salmon lice under control. And this was the best thing that ever happened to the industry. Suddenly returns became way more stable, profitability rocketed. And despite that increased profitability, they could not increase production by law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the sort of change we're, we're looking for. I want to introduce a a part of your investment process, um, the capital cycle. I wonder, what do you mean by capital cycle investing? Well, that is where a headwind turns into a tailwind. And what we're always looking for is a balance between supply and demand. And clearly, if there's excess supply, prices will fall and it won't be a good industry to invest in. But if the reverse is true, that for whatever reason, demand is is outstripping supply, prices will go up, margins will go up, the shares will go up, and they'll get re-rated on the increased earnings. Mm-hmm. How long do you think it takes for the market to reprice those earnings? You know, It can be quite quick. When it happens, it can happen fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. That's why the analysis is very useful, because by the time it, it appears in earnings, and you can do your numerical analysis on Bloomberg, uh, screens too late. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the appreciation will have taken place. Mm. Which leads me brilliantly onto the next question, which is, you know, what drives the market in Europe? Is it an institutional-led market? Is it the retail participation? Is it foreign participation? Who's the marginal buyer of stocks and how do they get bid up? The driver of stocks is overwhelmingly earnings per share growth. And you look at the company share prices over any sort of longer term period, and the correlation is overwhelming. So if you get your earnings per share up, 
everything else being equal, your stock price will go up as well, mm-hmm. and vice versa. That's presumably part of the equation for shareholder returns. And it's not much good if those earnings per share increase, but then don't get paid out to shareholders or indeed get invested, as you touched on, into another leg of an operation. Do you hold managers to account to make sure that they have friendly shareholder returns? I mean, we're a relatively small investor, Mm -hmm. so it's difficult for us to get too aggressive, but we certainly uh, voice our opinion through Mm -hmm. a number of forums. Mm-hmm. And do you think they're receptive? I mean, do you think you can make headway? And has that changed in your 20 years of managing money in Europe? To be honest with you, the progress is much slower than I thought. And so broadly, where we've invested in a German company, it's where the management have then had a good dollop of US or foreign influence. I can think of one good example of when a... U.S. manager is parachuted into a European company, the example being Linda and Praxa after Absolutely. the merger. Can you elaborate on the change that went on in that company as a result of that merger? Well, basically, the industrial gas market was evenly split between four global players, two U.S. ones and two Europeans. And the Americans were always irritated by the Europeans because the latter were always driven by volume gain, increased sales, whereas the US companies wanted increased profits. That speaks so to the dichotomy between the two areas Absolutely. for investment. Absolutely. It's like a sort of petri dish example. And so when the uh, practice management took over at Linda, very broadly, despite the relatively difficult economic conditions with the pandemic, very broadly, the uh, sales fell by a billion dollars at the combined group, but profits rose by a billion. Oh, right. So there's that much fat to take out. Amazing statistic. I wonder, the moment it's a hot topic, but you know, how do you think about geopolitical risk across the region? And clearly you have a, a bottom-up investment process. You, know, you try and look at stocks rather than being too tied up in the macro. But how does the geopolitical risk feed into your process, if at all? I mean, the geopolitical, I mean, other than Russia, I mean, geopolitics isn't a monumental issue in continental Europe. I mean, we are broadly a fairly peaceful bunch. Mm. But Not if you do a 200-year view. Not if you do a 200-year view. So it's, it's more the way the companies run themselves, which is what we're looking at. Mm. We're not so concerned about expropriation and and what have you. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of when it goes wrong? Maybe you don't need to name names, but what's the sort of edge of your understanding of companies? And where are your mistakes, if I can dwell on those for a moment? Well, turning back to Parmalat, there's an old quip that if it looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And Parmalat's did UHT milk, or uh, pasteurized milk, in Italy. Now, we all know that the milk market is not a very fast-growing market. But they were managing to get sort of high single-digit growth rates. And you sort of sat back and you thought, you know, this really is a bit peculiar. And for years and years and years, they did it. And suddenly, bang, 
they went from having an alleged 4 billion euros of cash on the balance sheet to having net debt of 14 billion. And it just disappeared overnight. Mm -hmm. And another example would be the Irish banking sector, Anglo-Irish, grew twice as fast as any other Irish bank. And they said they were better. But again, you know, you just felt, well, really, why are they growing at double the rate of anyone else? And the answer was fraud, <laughs> and they crashed. And so that is one of our, our guiding principles, you know, the sort of common sense overlay. Yeah, I take the common sense overlay. I think it's, it's clearly an important part of anyone's investment process. Turning back to the, the future of Europe, do you continue to see Europe rumbling on in its heterogeneous way? Or can you foresee any kind of tightening and consistency being applied to corporate Europe? It is very gradually coming together. Right. When you looks at Germany of 20 years ago, the Germany today, although we're very frustrated by what happens today, it is a lot better than 20 years ago when, for example, the Siemens accounts were tax documents. Mm. They weren't purporting to show what had happened during the year. They were there to minimise the tax burden, and that was moving to international accounting standards. And so it is considerably better, but it's a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to perhaps an American investor who, who simply doesn't allocate to Europe because they find it too difficult, or they allocate to a passive structure? What would you say if you were sitting in an elevator with said American investor and you had to sell them the case to be active in Europe? Well, being active in America is very difficult, as we know that most fund managers don't outperform in the States, whereas in Europe, you really can outperform. You put on a watch list the companies that you think are interesting, but just not being managed the way you want them managed. Mm -hmm. And then when you get a catalyst for change, you move in there. So for example, something like Linda, which was a great industry, but just not being run for shareholders. You don't waste your capital by being in there before the change has happened. But then when it does happen, you make it a very large position in the funds. And if you can get a track record of getting it more often right than wrong and outperforming over the years, then I think there's a powerful argument not for going down the tracker route. I wonder if we can talk more about your background and, and any experiences early on in your career that have shaped the way you think about allocating capital today. What are your battle scars? My battle scars, at the personal level, my most you can, embarrassing... Um, you can interpret it how you like. Yes, uh, it, was, um, it was It was quite a wake-up call, actually, to, to think before you talk, because I once had a plumber came to the house, my very early years in investment when I was at Credit Suisse. And he said, Chris, I'm bored of being a relatively poor individual. Can you give me some stock ideas? Because he heard I was in the industry. And so I went along to our UK team, who was highly regarded. And I asked them for four names, which I then kind of passively passed on to the plumber. And to my horror, 
Within six months, one of them was bust. Another one had fallen heavily, and the next two were pretty indifferent. So at a personal level, I had two problems. First of all, I lost that plumber for good, and it's never easy to get a plumber. But I also felt incredibly embarrassed and made me think that no matter how good somebody is, you always have to convince yourself that it's a good idea. Interesting. Um, I wonder, though, depending on what, how long ago that was. That was a long time ago. I don't know yeah. what plumbers. There was a moment where plumbers were making an awful lot of money. I think they, they still might, do. They might they have made do. more, more but money. But it's very difficult to get hold of a good one, and especially if one hates you, yeah, that's, that's one that's less. That's true. That's very true. It's constricted supply. Um, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, that was probably along those lines. But again, you know, I always remember reading a, a broker report that um, now this company's gone bust, we're removing it from our recommended list. It's simply, um, you know, kicking as many tires as you can, trying to pick, you know, the, the winning situations. Does anything come to mind when perhaps a superior has said something to you that you've completely disagreed with, or you've taken advice when it's consequently turned out to be the wrong advice? Well, there's always advice that's wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's part of life. The main thing, actually, in terms of going forward to try and think of how to manage money, is you have to evolve with the times. Because an investment strategy that's highly successful for many years may then become a very dangerous strategy. So when I started, for example, 30 years ago, the investment thinking was you bought last year's dogs. Last year's dogs would become this year's winners. Sounds easy. Sounds easy, and it sounds very logical, and it was very logical. So if a share had fallen 20% in a, in a rising market the previous year, you know, such a reason that very probably it was going to be doing well next year. But then for the last five years, that has been a disastrous strategy because we've been in a very strongly momentum-driven markets. You know, last year's dogs became this year's dogs and next year's dogs. And Maybe that's the bit of advice. That's the bit of advice I was looking for. It was terrible. Yes. Can you give another example of, of how one has had to evolve with the times? I mean, you know, it was buy stocks of the dogs the year before. How else is the sort of investment landscape in Europe changed? Well, also industries have changed. For example, in my early days, uh, the pharmaceutical industry was incredibly profitable. It still is, but also incredibly easy. Now, when a product goes ex-patent, it really goes ex-patent. Because in the old days, if you, know, you took a pill once a day, the pharmaceutical companies changed the formulation so you'd take it twice a day, they could hold on to their patents for the twice day and still carry on charging a lot of money. And it was great. So that industry has become much more difficult, whereas other industries that were very difficult, for whatever reason, have become less difficult through the capital cycle, through capacity being taken out, people given up through consolidation. Has that capital cycle been affected by low and indeed negative interest rates and negative real cost of capital? And, you know, there's been this sort of splurge of capital across industries. Does that then interfere with the capital cycle that you're talking about, where you get this sort of natural reducing of capacity at a time when it's needed? Yes. 
Yes, that is true. The cycle has become more elongated mm -hmm. because uh, certain industries do have zombie companies. But having said that, it's certainly not dead. Because if you think of the current eye-popping inflation we have in various sectors, that can only be the result of capacity shortage. And so there's definitely capital cycle factors at play. So, for example, the oil industry that didn't invest for its reasons, partly ESG, partly other reasons, suddenly thinks, eek, we've got to do an awful lot of investing. Mm. And that has all sorts of ramifications, but it's not just oil and gas. That's yes, a good example. So the final question is, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are looking to pursue a career in investment management or perhaps are at university and are thinking about their future? What advice would you give to them and what skills do they need to equip themselves to be successful in this business? I think it's a great job. I would strongly advise them to enter the industry if they're interested in watching companies evolve and seeing how industries are continually changing and which management strategy is going to be the winning one. But then also they have to tell themselves that they also have to have a dollop of humility because you know if they think they know all the answers, the stock market will very often get the better of them. Chris Carsten, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Chris Garston, the manager of the Waverton European Capital Growth Fund. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.